You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. This is part one of the very first Randall Wallace Show, available wherever you get your podcast. And let's take a look in South Carolina's 7th Congressional District State Representative Russell Fry earned the endorsement of Trump against five-term Representative Tom Rice, who defends his impeachment vote and condemnation of Trump's role in the insurrection. You can see right there, Russell Fry now projected to win with 51% of the vote, nearly 100% of the expected vote reporting. Uh, and This is more of a crowd than the Joe Biden rally. Look at this crowd. How about that? Thank you guys from, uh, thank you District 7. We're watching the numbers come in right now. They're incredible all across the district. I'm humbled to be here tonight as your next Congressman from District 7 in South Carolina. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm looking at the TVs right now and it's gonna be a good night for American patriots all around this country. Are y'all ready for a red wave? Welcome to a new year, a new podcast, a new Congress, and a new 7th District South from South Carolina Congressman, Russell Fry. I'm Randall Wallace, and we are live from Washington, D.C. for the very first Randall Wallace Podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Randall Wallace, and welcome to our new podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, the new show is going to be a lot different from our sister show, The Randall Wallace Presents, which is now doing Gerald Ford. This show is going to be a show that uh, hosts any number of guests for just some good conversation and information, too. But that's not going to be the case in these first couple of shows. Uh, in the beginning, of, At the beginning of January of 2023, we took off for Washington, D.C., with the plan to interview several people that were going to be up there in D.C. for the swearing-in, or to watch the swearing-in of our new, brand-new Congressman, Russell Fry. Uh, but as uh, luck would have it, history stepped in, and so we had to make some alternative plans. So this first uh, few episodes, we thought we would take you first on a tour of our nation's capital. Some folks don't ever get to go there, Washington, D.C., and then take a front row seat to the historic uh, battle uh, to replace or to become the Speaker of the House for the 118th Congress, all of which stalled our new congressman from being able to take office. So you'll be there for for this episode for that first day and uh, get to listen in on history with a front row seat. But first, just like us, we were up there for a few days, um, and I thought we would take you on a tour of Washington, D.C., uh, a historic tour of some incredible sites like the Lincoln Memorial, uh, the World War II Memorial, uh, the Smithsonian Institute, and into the castle, which I had never been to, and then a couple of really great historic restaurants, so we're going to tell you a lot about the history there. Um, So... uh, this first spot we went to was the Lincoln Memorial, and you'll learn a few things when you're trying to do a podcast for the very first time 
that uh, you need to make sure you've got plenty of lighting <laughs> and make sure your friends aren't around to interrupt you and knock you off script. The Lincoln Memorial, where it says in this temple, as in the hearts of the people for whom he saved the union, the memory of Abraham Lincoln is enshrined forever. On, this, on one of the walls on the right-hand side is the second inaugural address, the one that talks about malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as the God gives us to see the right. Let us strive up to finish the work we are. It is hard to read here because it's really dark. But the second inaugural is on one wall, and on the other wall is the Gettysburg Address. temple as in the hearts of the people for whom he saved the union the memory of abraham lincoln is enshrined forever and then on this wall is the four score seven years ago our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal now we are engaged in a great civil war testing My name is Garrett Cost. I'm a park ranger here at the National Mall and Memorial Parks. This May, the Lincoln Memorial turns 100 years old. What's one speech that you know from memory? To many adults and children worldwide, that answer is the Gettysburg Address. It's so famous, in fact, it's carved inside the memorial walls. To global visitors, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address defines freedom and equality after the bloody Battle of Gettysburg and the turbulent time of the Civil War. Freedoms secured in the United States after the war, like the ability to vote and protest, are not always found everywhere. Although each country is different, the Gettysburg Address can be seen throughout the world whenever inspiration is needed. To help bring the words of the Gettysburg Address to life, American composer Aaron Copeland wrote a contemporary piece that included excerpts from Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Copeland performed his piece, Lincoln Portrait, in 1957 in Venezuela. During that time, Venezuela was under control of a dictator. After reading the final words of the Gettysburg Address in Spanish, El gobierno del pueblo, por el pueblo, y para el pueblo, the audience erupted in cheers so loud that Copeland later admitted he couldn't even hear his own orchestra. The New York Times also commented on Copeland's performance, saying that the guest narrator, Wanasuo, had a magical impact. No one, not even Abraham Lincoln, knew the future of democracy in the United States during the Civil War. But when Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address, he spoke not with a certainty, but with a desperate plea for the future. Even when all things seem to be going wrong, the Gettysburg Address can serve as a rallying cry. For instance, after World War II, the country of Hungary was under the influence of the Soviet Union. Economic downturn and political suppression led to a negative view of its leaders. 
citizens wanted democracy and political freedom. They began a protest on October 23, 1956, which turned into a revolution. As Hungarians pleaded, one radio station held on to the bitter end, broadcasting Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. The transmission then cuts out to the sound of gunfire. If you think that these historic events are distant, consider this. There was once a time when Americans both North and South were actively fighting each other. Abraham Lincoln sought to end the bloodshed, right the wrongs of slavery, and promote democratic values. It was this legacy, after the Gettysburg Address, that Lincoln left behind that helped to inspire these more modern pushes for democracy. These more recent examples of reforming governments might not be as distant as the American Civil War, but they are indeed quite similar. They are recreating, rededicating themselves to a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Venezuela and Hungary are just two examples of the Gettysburg Address's legacy around the world. Many more still turn to these inspiring words found inside the chamber here at the Lincoln Memorial for inspiration in times of need. The Gettysburg Address is not just for Americans. It is for all freedom-loving individuals from around the world. Hi, my name is Tamika. I'm a park ranger here at the National Mall and Memorial Park. This month, we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Lincoln Memorial. Every year, millions of people walk these steps. But why do they come to visit the Lincoln Memorial? Some come to view the monumental structure, its classical design serving as a beacon on the National Mall. Others come to view the engraved speeches with murals painted by Jules Guerin. But for most, the iconic Lincoln statue is what draws them up the stairs into the chamber of the Lincoln Memorial. Though there are many significant elements within these chamber walls, the statue tells us the story of Lincoln, the man, and the president. Daniel Chester French sculpted the statue along with his associates, the Piccirilli brothers, beginning in 1914. French wanted to convey the physical and mental strength of the Civil War president. He studied Lincoln's life masks and hand casts made in 1860. If you look at the features of Lincoln's face, you will see the physical manifestations of a hard-fought war, his solemn expression showing the physical strain. Moving our eyes to the statue's hands, you will notice that one is clutched tightly while the other is relaxed and open. The clutched fist symbolizes Lincoln's will and determination to reunify this country and preserve the Union. His open hand represents his compassion and willingness to accept the southern states back into the Union at the conclusion of the Civil War. The sculptor took great care in choosing how to portray the seated figure of Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln can be seen seated in a chirul chair. In ancient Rome, a chirul chair was reserved for their most honored dignitaries. This chair became a fitting addition to the Lincoln statue. Under his arms, you will see bundled sticks called fasces, commonly used as a symbol of authority in ancient Roman culture. Here we know them to display the strength of a nation bound together after a perilous war. The statue would not be complete without a visual representation of the nation Lincoln fought so hard to preserve. 
the American flag can be seen draped on the back of the chair behind President Lincoln. The art displayed within this memorial tells the story of our 16th president. So the next time you're in the nation's capital, take a moment to visit the Lincoln Memorial and see the temple where the memory of Lincoln shall be enshrined forever. My name is Susan Philpott, and I'm a park ranger here at the National Mall and Memorial Parks. So what images come to mind when we talk about the civil rights movement at the Lincoln Memorial? We're in the spot of one of the most famous events to happen here at the Lincoln Memorial, where Dr. King stood to deliver the I Have a Dream speech during the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. But August 28, 1963, wasn't the first time that the civil rights movement came here to the Lincoln Memorial, and it wouldn't be the last. The first time Dr. King stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial to call for change was on May 17, 1957, the three-year anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education. That was the Supreme Court decision that declared that separate schools for black and white students were unequal and unconstitutional. Civil rights leaders organized the prayer pilgrimage for freedom to demand that President Eisenhower take action because states across the country were ignoring the decision and refusing to integrate schools. About 20,000 people traveled to Washington, D.C. to hear ministers and civil rights leaders, including Reverend King, offer prayers and call for justice. They asked the nation to protect the citizenship rights of Black Americans, including the right to vote. At the time, it was considered the greatest gathering for civil rights in history. But the fight for justice was long and the prayer pilgrimage for freedom was largely forgotten as the black freedom struggle continued. The next year, now four years since Brown versus Board of Education, civil rights leaders organized another demonstration here in Washington, D.C., the Youth March for Integrated Schools. On October 25, 1958, about 10,000 students and adults marched down Constitution Avenue. Then they gathered here at the Lincoln Memorial. This time, Coretta Scott King addressed the crowd because Dr. King had recently been stabbed at a book signing and he was still recovering. Mrs. King was also an inspiring speaker and she encouraged the students that day. You are proving that the youth of America is freeing itself of the prejudices of an older and darker time in our history, she said. Keep marching and resist injustice with the firm, nonviolent spirit you demonstrated today. And they kept marching. Civil rights activists organized many protests over the next decade, around the country and here in Washington, D.C. More than 200,000 people demonstrated here during the March on Washington in 1963. But the fight continued. Dr. King was killed on April 4th, 1968, while he was in Memphis, Tennessee, to demonstrate for workers' rights. His fellow freedom workers decided to move forward with the massive protest Dr. King had been planning when he died. The Poor People's Campaign brought people of all races and backgrounds here to the nation's capital. They set up an encampment along the reflecting pool called Resurrection City with the purpose of demonstrating to the country that poverty is unjust.
six weeks into the protest on June 19, 1968, Juneteenth, more than 75,000 people gathered here at the Lincoln Memorial for Solidarity Day. Coretta Scott King again addressed the crowd from the steps of the memorial. She said, it is fitting and proper that we come again to the Lincoln Memorial, this symbolic and historic spot where we have come several times before to present our case to the President, to the Congress of the United States, and to the American people. In the more than 50 years since that day, in the 100 years that the Lincoln Memorial has stood here on the National Mall, people have gathered here again and again to present their case to the American people, to ask for justice and freedom, and to stand in solidarity in the belief that the United States can live up to its promise to be a nation of the people, by the people, and for the people. Genius, genius draws no color line. And so it is fitting that Marian Anderson should raise her voice in tribute to the noble Lincoln whom mankind will ever honor. Miss Marian Anderson. many historic moments that have happened at the Lincoln Memorial uh, when Miriam Anderson came and sang uh, after she had been denied a chance to sing in Washington, D.C., which was segregated back in the uh, 1930s. Now, when you walk just up from the Lincoln Memorial facing the Capitol, you will arrive at one of America's great monuments that's been built in the last 25 years, uh, and that is the World War II Memorial. Uh, and you're gonna, we're going to take you there, let you have a little tour of it, courtesy of a man who used to be there all the time, who has sadly passed away uh, and last year. But somebody saved a clip of him uh, talking about uh, the World War II Memorial. And then uh, an intro video that we had that tells you all about it. The Freedom Wall holds 4,048 gold stars. Each gold star represents 100 American service personnel who died or or is counted missing in the war. The 405,399 American deaths missing and missing from World War II are second only to the loss of more than 620,000 Americans during the American Civil War. 400,000 killed in World War II. And so you ought to stand there and look at the gold stars and you know, think about sacrifice. In other words, what people did, they gave up their lives to save our country. 
Thanks to all of you, there's an important new memorial on the Mall in Washington, D.C., the National World War II Memorial. Designed by Friedrich St. Florian, it creates a special place to commemorate the sacrifice and celebrate the victory of World War II. At the same time, it enhances a space that is already special, our National Mall. The memorial covers more than seven acres, two-thirds of it landscaping and water. It's built of bronze and granite, some 17,000 pieces of granite from South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina, California, and Brazil. The memorial commemorates the battles of World War II and the people who fought them. But it's much more than a memorial to hardship and gunfire, sacrifice and heroism. It's a celebration of the spirit that brought all Americans together, black and white, Native American and first-generation immigrant, soldier and factory worker. On the battlefront, and on the home front. They've been called the greatest generation that ever lived, and Americans everywhere have helped create this memorial to say thank you. Beyond the Rainbow Pool, you'll see the Freedom Wall. Here we mark the price of freedom. A field of 4,000 sculpted gold stars commemorates the more than 400,000 Americans who gave their lives. The gold star has its own history. During the war, blue stars were displayed to indicate family members serving in uniform. The stars changed to gold when a loved one was lost. Every element of the World War II memorial works to a single purpose. Eloquently expressed in the engraving of the announcement stone, we passed at the ceremonial entrance. Here in the presence of Washington and Lincoln. One the 18th century father and the other the 19th century preserver of our nation. We honor those 20th century Americans who took up the struggle during the Second World War and made the sacrifices to perpetuate the gift our forefathers entrusted to us. A nation conceived in liberty and justice. Now, day two of our trip to Washington, D.C., uh, we went back down to the mall and did something that I actually have never done for all the times that I've been in Washington, D.C., and that was stop off at the castle, the original building for the Smithsonian Institute. And there they had a lot of displays that told you the story of the Smithsonian. How was the Smithsonian created? It had many twists and turns, and against all odds, the Smithsonian was founded. A series of extraordinary events surrounds the Smithsonian's creation. Had the outcome of any of these events been different, the institution might never have existed at all. Smithson was first left the bulk of his estate to his nephew, Henry James Hungerford, with the rem remarkable codicil that 
if he died without children, legitimate or illegitimate, his fortune would go to the United States of America and found the Smithsonian Institution. If his nephew had fathered children, the clause in the will would not have been, and the fortune would have remained with his family. Smithson's nephew died a mere six years after Smithson as a young man and without heirs. When the United States was notified of the unprecedented gift in 1835, a debate started in Congress that lasted for almost a year. Many lawmakers were against accepting the fortune from a foreigner. Others were worried of creating a national institution in Washington, and some wanted to use the money, Smithson's bequest, for other purposes. Congress finally authorized the acceptance of the Smithson bequest on July 1st, 1833. The Smithsonian Institution started with a gift from an 18th century English scientist named John Smithson, uh, 1765 to 1829, who left his fortune to the United States, a country he had never seen. This exhibition looks at the history of the Smithsonian, focusing on its research, museums and public programs in art, culture, history, and science, and the role of the American public in the Smithsonian's museums and research. The Smithsonian is a partnership between its specialist staff and the American people. Why a castle? Congress decreed that the Smithsonian would include an art gallery, a library, a chemical laboratory, a lecture hall, and a museum. A 28-year-old architect named James Winwick Jr. won the competition to create the building that could house all these diverse functions. There was no similar building in the United States in 1846. Renwick designed the Smithsonian building, now known as the castle, in a medieval revival style with Gothic and Romanesque details. The style was intended to evoke the cloistered, scholarly atmosphere associated with such venerable English colleges as Oxford and Cambridge. The dark red stone was a shocking choice for the capital city, where most public buildings were classical. Uh, in style and built with the marble or light aqua stone sandstone. This building became a major landmark in architect, American architecture. The cornerstone of the castle was laid on May 1st, 1847 in a grand Masonic ceremony that was attended by a reported 7,000 people. The president, the vice president, and the mayor of Washington, D.C. were among the many dignitaries present. When the building was finally completed in 1855, it housed all the functions of the fledgling institution, chemistry laboratory, national history laboratory, library, scientific demonstration room, and administrative offices, lecture hall, art gallery, a national history museum, and even living quarters for the institution's first secretary and his family, who by name's name was Joseph Henry's, which they had some pictures of his living quarters that were in the castle. I then bequeath the whole of my property to the United States of America to found at Washington under the name of the Smithsonian Institution an establishment for the increase and diffusion of knowledge among men. James Smithson, 1826. Who was James Smithson? The Smithsonian's benefactor, James Smithson, is something of a mystery. He was born sometime around 1765 in Paris, where his mother had gone to have the child in secret. She was a wealthy widow. Smithson's father was a mar was married to her cousin and one of the most fashionable men in England. 
He became the Duke of Northumberland and a great patron of the arts and sciences. James Smithson studied at Pembroke College at Oxford University, receiving the Master's of Arts degree in 1786. Smithson knew most of the great scientific minds of his age. If he had Facebook in 1800, the chart above reflects what his network might have looked like. For Smithson, collaboration and communication with fellow scientists was essential, even though Europe was at war for much of his life. He worked hard to exchange news and specimens with his colleagues abroad. He believed that the increase of knowledge came from sharing information. He even published reports of small improvements he made to his scientific apparatus and pushed his colleagues to do the same. The Smithsonian Institution is a place where you can learn about the history of your state. The section on South Carolina, British South Carolina. In the late 1600s, the British established a plantation system in South Carolina like the one in the West Indies, dedicated to the production of a single cash crop for export. The colony's rice plantations offered substantial profits to a few, but depended on the forced labor of many. Enslaved Indians were part of the early workforce, but the British soon turned to importing unfree African workers. By the, by the early 1700s, South Carolina had an African majority and a European minority. West Africans brought their own knowledge and beliefs and created a new language and culture in America. The Sea Island Baskets, the African population along the South Carolina coast created a new language called Gullah, which contributed uh, com combined English and African languages. They also created a new African-American culture. Visible in artifacts like these, handmade sea island baskets that remain a mark of the low country culture to this day. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. The Declaration of Independence. The virtuous citizen of the many core responsibility of good citizenship, the most basic has been being a good citizen. The founding generation believed that liberty and freedom could only survive if the republic and its people were virtuous. For them, and still today, this means respecting the country's institutions, fulfilling civic duties, contributing to the community, and generally being a good neighbor. A citizen's jury. In a nation based on the sovereignty of the people, the jury system is one of the cornerstones of American democracy. Established under the Constitution is the right to an impartial jury of one's peers. This right also implies an obligation of citizens to serve as members of a jury. Defining citizenship. Americans have prided themselves on being a nation of immigrants who helped to build the country and enriched its society and culture. Yet there has been an ongoing tension between the welcoming newcomers and being concerned that the character of the nation might be changed. From the earliest years of the Republic, laws representing various points of view have been passed and guidelines have been developed to instruct prospective citizens on American history, values, rights, and responsibilities. How diverse should the citizenry be? In a nation created by immigrants, nothing has been more debated than what should be the ideal character of its citizenry. One view is that multiculturalism the preservation of diverse cultural heritage enriches the country. Some have called for a common citizenry, 
a melting pot where immigrants are assimilated and their traditions are transformed into a homogeneous American culture. Still others challenge diversity by seeking to restrict immigration and exclude certain racial and ethnic groups. These very different positions have greatly impacted the nation's political debates on economic, foreign, and immigration policy and education and social welfare programs. On April 8, 1968, four days after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, Congressman John Conyers introduced a bill to establish a federal holiday in his honor. For advocates of this legislation, it was an effort to place Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement into the national narrative. It took years of organizing to overcome strong resistance. In 1983, the King Holiday Bill was signed into law. Initially, only 27 states officially acknowledged the holiday. Not until 2000 did all 50 states recognize the day. The city of Myrtle Beach recognized it during uh, my tenure as a city councilman. It's one of the votes that I was proud to, to have been, uh, uh, had played a role in. Petitioning with your feet. From local protests to massive marches in Washington, the demonstrators have forced officials to confront issues that they have often wished to avoid. By any imaginable means, people have come before the government and demanded to be heard, carrying signs, singing songs, and shouting from a podium. Whether beautiful and moving or disrespectful and offensive, these demonstrations are an exercise in the American democratic process. One of the real treats that I got to do in, in Washington, D.C. was go to Martin's Tavern, which was established in 1933. And my friend, Jacqueline Daniels, uh, arranged for us to get there. And we so we got a, we had a, a reservation. And this is a pretty historic place in Georgetown. And I, and I would highly recommend the food was excellent. I had a buffalo burger. The food was absolutely excellent. Uh, and so if you get a chance, go to Martin's Tavern. It was established in 1933, and they have a history, a flyer that they gave us. And I thought I'd read a little bit out of it because it just really had some fascinating stuff. They were celebrating their 88th anniversary, 1933 to 2021. In 1933, Martin, William S. Martin and his son, William G. Martin, opened Martin's Tavern on the corner of Wisconsin and North Street. The fourth-generation owner, Billy Martin Jr., continues the tradition of Washington's oldest family-owned restaurant and a Georgetown landmark by welcoming neighbors and world travelers alike. As we have through over an 87-year history, we will continue to provide the best possible customer service experience for our guests. Through quality food and beverage, generosity and compassion, we, as Martin Ta Martin's Tavern, are a family and want to extend our values of respect and love for each other to the Washington, D.C. community and beyond. That's written on their front. Uh, but this is a, a, a neat restaurant because Martin's Tavern has had the honor of serving every president at some point, from Harry S. Truman in Booth 6 to George W. Bush on Table 12. And they had a list of the president's favorites tables that they cover. Uh, and it's been interesting because one of them, Booth 3, is the proposal booth. JFK and Jack, Jackie Onassis, or Jackie Bouvier at the time, uh, frequently dined at Booth 3 at Martin's Tavern. On Wednesday, June 24, 1953, Jackie had returned from covering the coronation of Queen Elizabeth for the Washington Times Herald. He popped the question to their favorite, in their favorite booth. Quote, I was in Martin's Tavern sitting at the bar after the senator proposed and she accepted. The news ran through the restaurant. Unquote, from Marion H. Smoke, Deputy Acting and Chief of Protocol for the President and Secretary of State, 1969 to 1974. 
Booth 6 is the Truman Booth. Harry Truman, then senator from Missouri, his wife Bess, and his daughter Margaret often dined in Martin's while Margaret attended George Washington University. Margaret Truman wrote 14 mystery novels set in Washington, and many of them mention Martin's. Booth 24 is the LBJ booth. Senate Majority Leader Lyndon Baines Johnson was one of the most powerful men in American politics. As a congressman in the 1940s, he frequently dined with his mentor, Speaker Sam Rayburn, who taught him much about federal legislation in Booth 24. According to LBJ biographer Robert A. Caro, Johnson, Rayburn, and his assistant Richard Bowling often met in that booth to discuss which bills they wanted to pass or defeat. But my favorite booth, as probably shocks no one who listened to our other show, which was on the Richard Nixon presidential terms and then going through the misconduct that led to Watergate uh, by prosecutors, not by the president. Um, I think we kind of exonerated him in our in our show, and I would recommend you going over to Randall Wallace Presents, starting at episode 50 and then even into episode, in the, like episode 31 is LBJ. But starting at episode 50 through episode 174, we go through the entire Nixon presidency, and it'll give you, it'll change everything you ever thought you knew about Richard Nixon. But I digress. Booth two, the Nixon booth. Richard Nixon dined at Martin's Tavern throughout the 1940s and 1950s while serving as a representative, senator, and vice president. He enjoyed Grandma Martin's meatloaf and most often dined with congressional colleagues. So there you go. And there's a lot more history on here uh, about Martin's Tavern. It's mentioned in books and uh, all the other interesting things and uh, about it, including its role in the Brown v. Board of Education in Booth 3. Uh, and, and just, I would recommend, if you get a chance, to go to Martin's in Washington and in Georgetown. One of the other places to go is Old Abbott Grill, which has been open since 1856. It's the oldest saloon in Washington, and it's a great restaurant. Uh, and I, they've got a little thing they got, and I'll just read some of it. It's a history, like a little pamphlet. Uh, the Old Ebbet Grill, Washington's oldest, most historic saloon, was founded in 1856. According to legend, innkeeper William E. Ebbet bought a boarding house at that time, but no one today can pinpoint its exact location. It was most likely on the edge of present-day Chinatown, somewhere near the Capital One Arena. As a boarding house, the Ebbet guest list read like a who's who of American history. President McKinley is said to have lived there during his tenure in Congress. Presidents Grant, Andrew Johnson, Cleveland, Theodore Roosevelt, and Harding supposedly refreshed themselves at its stand-around bar. Each table in the Ebbet was graced by a blue history card and read, quote, Many other famous statesmen, naval and military heroes, too numerous to mention here, have also been guests of the House, unquote. Evolving to a higher form, the Ebbet became Washington's first known saloon, and as the years passed, it moved to a number of new locations. By the early 20th century, it had found its way to what is now the National Press Building at 14th and F Streets, Northwest. Two saloons coexisted in the press building at the time, a Dutch room and an old English room. During the 1920s, when the Ebbet moved to a converted haberdashery at 1427 F Street, Northwest, the legacies of these Dutch and English bars were combined into a single old Ebbet grill. The F Street location was just two doors away from the Rhodes Tavern, which occupied the northeast corner of F and 15th Streets. Having a considerable history of its own, its bar was reportedly the site where British generals toasted 
one another as they watched the White House burn during the War of 1812. The final move, I'm going to fast forward a little bit, in 1983, the old Ebbett Grill was uprooted one last time. The building was raised and the Ebbett uh, moved around the corner to its current location, which is at 675 15th Street Northwest, to the Beaux Arts Building that was once the old B.F. Keys Theater, bringing its rich history with it. The new old Ebbett remains a, visual, a virtual saloon Smithsonian. It's got history in detail. The moves in their history have amassed a priceless collection of antiques and memorabilia. Among the way, Old Ebbett acquired beer steins, animal heads reputedly bagged by Teddy Roosevelt, and a wooden bear said to have been imported by Alexander Hamilton for his private bar. Unfortunately, many artifacts were beyond preserving, unable to weather the 1983 move just around the corner. Said architect John Richards Andrews at the time, we tried to bring the spirit of the place without some of the old details. Uh, today, the Victorian interior evokes Washington saloons at the turn of the century. The antique clock over the revolving door at the entrance is an heirloom from the previous location, and the marble staircase with an iron spindled rail was salvaged from the old National Metropolitan Bank next door. The mahogany main bar is a copy of the bar at the F Street location, which had rotted beyond repair. It has an alcove near the bar and foyer. Paintings of Camille Kubik show the epic at its prior F Street location. The three carved glass panels separating the main bar from the main dining room were done by Charles B. Chefs, who carved the mirrors and windows as well. The panels depict the treasury, the Capitol, and the White House. Around the corner from the main bar is the famous Oyster Bar, featuring paintings by marine artist uh, Peter Egeli and Chesapeake Bay watercolor colorist J. Robert Burnell. The Oyster Bar features an array of exceptional oysters and winning wines from the annual Old Ebbett Grill International Wines for Oysters competition. On the left foyer and up the five marble stairs is the Corner Bar. This federal style room is reminiscent of a downtown club with spirit of the Chesapeake Bay. Paintings of waterfowl hunting by Richmond, Virginia artist Claiborne D. Gregory Jr. and museum quality collection of decoys convey the relaxed and timeless comfort and camaraderie of the Eastern Shore Hunt Club. Antique gas chandelier fixtures light the main dining room. The wooden cross rooms on the 10-foot ceilings are accentuated by a style of pinstripe stenciling popular at the turn of the century. The chairs in the dining room are copies of antique Victorian Brentwood chairs from a New York Central Railroad dining car, replicated furniture manufacturers Shelby Williams, paintings by Camille Kovic, and the north wall depict festive patriotic scenes near the White House and near the Supreme Court and the Library of Congress. Also on the north wall, opposite the rear booth, hangs a large oil painting entitled Three Bathers by American artist Howard Chandler Christie. Just beyond the main dining room is Grant's Bar, with its ceiling mural by New Jersey artist Carol Loeb and an artist rendering by Peter Egeli of the famous Matthew Brady photograph of General Grant. An oil painting behind the bar of a nude recliner reclining near a lily pond was painted about 1900 by John Paul Gervais. In 1994, Clyde's Restaurant Group commissioned Nantucket artist James Harrington, a self-taught impressionist painter, to capture unofficial Washington. The result of this sojourn in the capital may be seen paintings throughout the restaurant. No tour of the restaurant is complete without a glimpse into the handsome private dining room and bar downstairs, and the cabinet room features six paintings of game birds by Australian-born and longtime Georgetown resident Robin Hill, one of the world's most distinguished bird paintings and artists. 
Old Epic Grill at 675 15th Street Northwest, Washington, D.C. is a must if you get to go to the nation's capital. Pursuant to the 20th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, for the meeting of the 118th Congress of the United States, the House will come to order. The prayer will be offered by Chaplain Kibben. Pursuant to law and precedent, the next order of business is the election of the Speaker of the House of Representatives for the 118th Congress. Nominations are now in order. The clerk recognizes the gentlewoman from New York, Ms. Stefani. Madam Clerk, on behalf of the House Republican Conference, I rise today to nominate the gentleman from California, Kevin McCarthy, as Speaker of the House to lead America's new Republican majority. In just two years of failed one-party Democrat rule, the American people have suffered from a historic border crisis, rampant crime, crippling inflation, rising energy costs, runaway debt, unconstitutional attacks on our fundamental freedoms, and weakness at home and abroad. The people across this great nation spoke loudly and clearly that they wanted a new direction. They wanted a new direction to stop this radical far-left agenda, to hold Joe Biden accountable, and to save the United States of America. Under Kevin McCarthy's leadership, House Republicans drafted a bold vision to put our nation back on track. Our commitment to America is a promise to the American people that this new Republican majority will stand up for an economy that's strong, a nation that's safe, a future that's built upon freedom, and a government that's accountable to the people. McCarthy is the proud son of a firefighter and a fourth-generation Californian from Kern County, home to wildcatters, frontiersmen, and the right stuff. Bakersfield embodies the American spirit to work hard and dream big. This spirit that built our great nation is what we need in our next speaker. Kevin McCarthy is a strong conservative. He is proudly pro-life a supporter of our Second Amendment rights, and he is committed to stopping wasteful government spending and shrinking the size of government. When Republicans last held the majority, Kevin helped to reduce domestic spending and lower the tax burden on hardworking American families. And as a Republican leader over the past several years, Kevin has taken the fight to one-party Democrat rule on behalf of the American people. He helped bring this historic border crisis to the national consciousness, a crisis Kevin made sure Democrats could no longer ignore. He fought for and succeeded in repealing the ill-advised military COVID vaccine mandate. And he stood on this very floor and spoke for a record eight hours and 35 minutes to not only delay the vote in the House, but to make the case that ultimately defeated Joe Biden and House Democrats 
Democrats' dangerous Build Back Broke legislation. No one, no one in this body has worked harder for this Republican majority than Kevin McCarthy. Since the day Kevin was elected as our leader, House Republicans have only gained seats and won. While Republicans in the Senate and state legislatures lost seats, House Republicans are the only ones who have consistently won because Kevin knows what we stand for, he knows when we should engage in the fight, and he knows how to build consensus. Importantly, Kevin has done the work of listening to all Americans, traveling to nearly every district in this country, fighting for conservative values, and fighting for the people that, we, that are committed to upholding them. Kevin has shown up in these communities of every member in our conference, and I can guarantee he has shown up in the districts of our many of our colleagues across the aisle as well. His relentless effort has yielded an extraordinary new House Republican majority that represents our country's greatness from all walks of life. When the last Congress gaveled in two years ago, every new Republican welcome to our conference was a woman, veteran, or minority. Today's House Republican Conference is the most diverse Republican conference in our nation's history. A seasoned legislator, an experienced leader, a friend to so many of us, a proud conservative with a tireless work ethic, Kevin McCarthy has earned the speakership of the People's House. Madam Clerk, as the chair of the Republican Conference, it is my high honor to present our conference's nominee for election to the office of Speaker of the People's House, the Honorable Kevin McCarthy from the state of California. And I yield back. The clerk now recognizes the gentleman from California, Mr. Aguilar. Madam Clerk, I rise today at the direction of the House Democratic Caucus to place into nomination for election to the position of Speaker of the House of Representatives, the pride of Brooklyn, Hakeem Jeffries of New York. The names of the Honorable Kevin McCarthy, a representative-elect from the state of California, and the Honorable Hakeem Jeffries, a representative-elect from the state of New York, have been placed in nomination. Are there further nominations? Madam Clerk, there is. The gentleman from Arizona is recognized. America knows that Washington is broken. The power doesn't reside in the speaker. It doesn't in the majority leader, nor the minority leader, nor the whips. The power resides in we, the people, the people who entrusted us here, each individual member, to represent their district, their state, and the federal government. Washington's broken. We're the last ones to know. A wise person once told me, good process builds good policy, builds good politics. We got to return to that. It is with that that I place the name of my friend and colleague from Arizona, Annie Biggs, for Speaker of the House. Thank you. Are there further nominations? There being no further nominations, 
The clerk appoints the following tellers. This is an ABC News special report. Now reporting, David Muir. Good afternoon. We're coming on the air because we have been witnessing here something extraordinary from Capitol Hill, an historic and much more complicated changing of the guard in the U.S. House of Representatives. More complicated than most Republicans wanted on this first day of the 118th Congress. More complicated, certainly, than Kevin McCarthy wanted today as Republicans now assume control of the House from the Democrats. The results of this first round of this high-stakes vote for a new speaker have now come in. Republican leader Kevin McCarthy had hoped to take the gavel immediately after the first ballot. That will not happen. The voting will continue this afternoon. He faces an uphill battle within his own party, a select few against him, but enough of them to keep him from getting the votes he needed, at least in this first round of voting, this first ballot. Leader McCarthy had spent the morning behind closed doors trying to secure the 218 votes needed to become the next speaker and to avoid having to go to another round, another ballot, which he was not able to do a short time ago. And we should point out that in not doing so, he has made history. The last time the vote for speaker had to go past the first ballot was some 100 years ago. McCarthy, who already moved into the speaker's office, rejecting some of the latest demands from some hardline conservative members of the Freedom Caucus, he did make some major concessions, hoping to sway his critics, including making it easier to remove him from the position if he's elected. Republicans have a razor-thin majority in the House. McCarthy could only afford to lose some four votes from his party. Uh, he lost far more than that by the end of the first ballot. And in fact, Akeem Jeffries, the Democrat, uh, the leader for the Democrats in the House, actually surpassing McCarthy. That also uh, makes history. It's the first time the party not in power in the House actually leads at the end of a ballot for the Speaker of the House. Of course, that's just the first. You need to get a majority in the House in order to be named Speaker. And so they will continue to do multiple rounds of voting until there is a Speaker. It's believed that will be Kevin McCarthy. But again, we're watching history unfold. Let's get right to Rachel Scott, who covers Congress on the Hill. Rachel, you spoke with McCarthy just before he entered that chamber today, and he indicated to you that no matter how many rounds this takes, he'll see this through. David, Republican leader Kevin McCarthy is defiant. I caught up with him just moments before he walked onto the House floor, and he told me that he was willing to battle this out for as long as it takes. He met privately behind closed doors with Republican members of Congress earlier today, and he gave a very impassioned, fiery speech telling them that he is not going anywhere. But that appears to have done more harm than good because conservatives leaving saying that they were sweared at instead of being sworn in today on this very first day of the new Congress. We were expecting at least five Republicans to not support McCarthy. That number has grown to 19. And of course, this essentially paralyzes the House. They cannot move forward until they have a speaker. Rather extraordinary, Rachel. Let's get right to John Carl, our chief Washington correspondent. John, you have interviewed Kevin McCarthy often. Uh, tell us what's going through his mind, if you could guess at this point. And are Republicans not concerned about the optics of this, given the fact that they're making history, but history they didn't want to make today? I mean, the optics for Republicans is terrible. They've taken control. They've won control of the House by a narrow majority. The first ha act of this uh, first House of this uh, Republican House, more votes went to the liberal Democrat uh, candidate for speaker than went for Kevin McCarthy. Think about that, David. Hakeem Jeffries got more votes than Kevin McCarthy for speaker in this round. Uh, this is something uh, Kevin McCarthy has fought for. He was just steps away from being speaker uh, years ago and lost out, had to give away uh, to Paul Ryan. Now it's happening again. 
John Carl, Rachel Scott will continue to monitor us on the Hill. As soon as we do have a new Speaker of the House, we'll come back on the air. For many of you, the tribute to Barbara Walters on The View continues in a moment. This has been a special report from ABC News. For what purpose does the gentleman from Ohio seek recognition? I rise to nominate Kevin McCarthy for Speaker of the House. The gentleman is recognized. Uh, Thank you, Madam Clerk. Um, I think we have three objectives this Congress. Three fundamental things we have to get done in the 118th Congress. First, pass the bills that fix the problems. In two years' time, we have, went, we, we have a border that is no longer a border. We have a military that can't meet its recruitment goals. We have bad energy policy, bad education policy, record spending, record inflation, record debt, and a government that has been weaponized against we the people, against the very people we represent. So we, we need to pass legislation to address all that. And I hope my Democrat colleagues will join me. I really do. But I have my doubts. And if they don't, and if Chuck Schumer says, no, we're not going to take up that legislation that we pass, and if Joe Biden won't sign it, so be it. They'll have to, they'll have to answer to the people in 2024. Second, second, we can never, ever let a bill like the one that passed 12 days ago, $1.7 trillion spent, we can never, ever let that kind of legislation pass again. We, we, have to, we have to pass a budget that makes sense, that's good common sense, then do the 12 appropriation bills that, that, are, that recognize it's the people's money, not ours, and send it to the Senate, and then stand firm on that legislation. And again, if they won't take it up, and Joe Biden won't sign it, we can stand firm on a CR or something. We can have that fight. But we are not going to have what took place a week and a half ago ever happen again. And then finally, third, and this is important, we got to do the oversight, well, the do House the investigations. We have to do the oversight and the investigations that need to be done. This idea that bureaucrats who never put their name on a ballot but think they run the country who have assaulted our constituents' First Amendment liberties, they need to be held accountable. That has to happen. We need to do it. We need to do it in a way that's consistent with the Constitution, but we need to do it vigorously and aggressively. That is part of our duty as members of this body. To my friends here on this side of the aisle, I would just say this. The differences we may have, the differences between Joyce and Jordan or Biggs and Bacon, they pale in comparison to the differences between us and the left, which now unfortunately controls the other party. So we had better, we had better come together and fight for these key things, these three things. That's, that's what the people want us to do. And I think Kevin McCarthy is the right guy to lead us. I really do, or I wouldn't be standing up here giving this speech. I, I came in with Kevin. We came in the same time 16 years ago. We haven't always agreed on everything, but I like his fight. I like his tenacity, and I like it. I remember Kevin told me, I actually wrote about this in a book. I remember Kevin told me, he said, when, 
the, the toughest times in life are when you get knocked down. The question is, can you come back? And I've always seen him be able to do that. We need to rally around him, come together, and deal with these three things. Because this is what the people sent us here to do. My favorite scripture verse is 2 Timothy 4, 7. Paul's the old guy giving advice to the young guy. And he says, fight the good fight, finish the course, keep the faith. I like the verse because it's a verse of action. Fight, finish, keep. Not wimpy words, words that I think fit America. That's what the American people want us to do. They want us to fight for the things they care about and they elected us to do. And we should all remember, we should all remember only about 12,000 people have ever had the opportunity to do what we're doing today, sit in this body, serve in this Congress. It is a privilege. It is an opportunity. We owe it to them, the American people, the good people of this great country, to step forward, to come together, get a speaker elected so we can address these three things. I hope you'll vote for Kevin McCarthy, and that's why I'm proud to nominate him for Speaker of the House. Florida, rise. To nominate a candidate for Speaker of the House. The gentleman is recognized. Well, sometimes we have to do jobs that we don't really want to do. And sometimes we have to do jobs that we are called to do. And so, my colleagues, I rise to nominate the most talented, hardest working member of the Republican conference who just gave a speech with more vision than we have ever heard from the alternative. I'm nominating Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan is humble. Perhaps today, humble to a fault, maybe the right person for the job of Speaker of the House isn't someone who wants it so bad. Maybe the right person for the job of Speaker of the House isn't someone who has sold shares of themselves for more than a decade to get it. Maybe Jim Jordan is the right person for Speaker of the House because he is not beholden to the lobbyists and special interests who have corrupted this place and corrupted this nation under the leadership of both Republicans and Democrats. Maybe Jim Jordan would be the right person for Speaker of the House because he wouldn't fight us when we try to get a term limits bill on the floor. Maybe Jim Jordan would be the right person because he wouldn't fight us when we try to put a balanced budget on the floor and vote for it. And maybe Jim Jordan is the right person because he would endorse the plan that was built by the Texas delegation to finally secure our border. Mr. Jordan said in his nomination that there are certain bills that we have to pass to fix the problem. The challenge is, the alternative has been someone voting for the very bills that have caused these problems. Mr. Jordan says that we cannot accept legislation like the omnibus, and I fully agree. And if Jim Jordan were Speaker of the House, if he were the leader of the Republican team, we wouldn't have that circumstance choking the economy of our country, increasing inflation, and diminishing the prospects of a better life for our fellow Americans. And finally, Mr. Jordan said we must engage in rigorous oversight. Every one of my Republican colleagues knows that the person who can lead that oversight effort, who works on it every day, who has the skill and the talent and the will is Jim Jordan. I'm nominating him and I'm voting for him. The reading clerk will call the roll.
Welcome to the programme. And we begin in Washington, where the US House of Representatives has adjourned in disarray after three failed attempts to elect the Republican Kevin McCarthy as Speaker. It's the first time in a century the procedure has failed on a first vote. A small number of hardline Republicans are refusing to support Mr McCarthy and nothing can go ahead in the House until a new Speaker is elected. Our North America correspondent Peter Bowes has the story. The heart of U.S. government deadlocked because its members can't agree on who'll be the next speaker. The House of Representatives is meeting for the first time at the start of the new Congress with the Republicans in charge. Pursuant to law and precedent, the next order of business is the election of the Speaker of the House of Representatives for the 118th Congress. With a slim majority, the Republicans have the votes to select the next speaker, but only if most of them agree. Kevin McCarthy is the frontrunner. The Republican leader enjoys wide support and has been campaigning for the role for months. And I think Kevin McCarthy is the right guy to lead us. I really do, or I wouldn't be standing up here giving this speech. I, I came in with Kevin. We came in the same time 16 years ago. We haven't always agreed on everything. But I like his fight, I like his tenacity, and I like the... I remember Kevin told me, I actually wrote about this in a book. I remember Kevin told me, he said, when the, the toughest times in life are when you get knocked down. The question is, can you come back? And I've always seen him be able to do that. The name but this could be a knockdown from which there is no comeback. Mr McCarthy is a polarising figure and not universally popular in his party. And that was obvious when the voting started. Round after round, three times, he failed to win the majority needed to be declared the new speaker. It was down to a small group on the right of the party who voted instead for Jim Jordan, who'd earlier said Kevin McCarthy was the right person for the job. He was opposed by 19 members during the first two rounds and then 20 in the third round. No persons having received a majority of the whole number of votes cast by surname a speaker has not been elected. It leaves the House in disarray, unable to move on with the business of running the country. But differences in political ideology also lie at the centre of this impasse, with disagreement over the future direction of the Republicans. There had been indications that there was going to be this fight going back weeks. Obviously, this is not the way the Republicans in the House wanted to start their uh, majority. But, uh, but there had been these indications and, and both sides have dug in and, and there's no uh, indication yet of when this is going to end. So far, Kevin McCarthy has doggedly refused to drop out of the race. It's the first time in a hundred years that a speaker has not been elected in the opening round of voting. On that occasion, it took several days. History could be about to repeat itself. Peter Bowes, BBC News. Congress and 
fundraising and uh, I don't remember Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.